Let's pray. God, we are always grateful to be in your house, to be in your presence, to hear your word, to seek to understand it in a way that moves us, transforms us, sends us out into the world to be your people and to know the way. And so bless us in this time, we pray, as we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So, we have made it to the end. Today, we are in chapter 31 of the story, the last chapter of the book. It is a chapter that deals with the book of Revelation. And so, because there's so much in this book, not only does it deal with all 22 chapters of Revelation, but you know, if you know Revelation at all, you know it's full of imagery and it's full of the plagues of God and it's about the Antichrist and there's so much in this chapter. So there's a lot that I'm not going to cover this morning because there's so much. But what I do want you to know is probably near the end of fall, I'm going to be doing the book of Revelation in my Wednesday night Bible study after we finish 1 John, which we're almost done with. So I'm excited to be able to do that because in that class, we'll be able to go in depth about all the meanings of the plagues and the imagery and, and the Antichrist and all that is with that book. But it deals with important end-time concepts. See, the book of Revelation is like no other book in the Bible. It is given the title of prophecy, but it might be better called apocalyptic literature, meaning that it is about the end times and what that means for us with Jesus Christ being our Lord and our Savior. In fact, the story chapter is called the end times. The book is unique in that it starts and it ends with a blessing. And so whenever you see yellow or underlined parts, please read those with me. So the book of Revelation, at near the beginning of the book, it starts with this blessing. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So John writes these words and he says, blessed is the one who reads aloud these, these words, the, the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear, but not just hear, but who keep what is written in it. You know, if you hear something and you don't let it actually change you, affect you, if you don't do anything with it, then it won't bless you, right? And so we need to do something with what we hear. And why is it important? Why is John being given these words? Because the time is near. And we need to know what is going on and how that affects us. And then near the end of the book, we read of another blessing. And behold, I am coming soon. These are the words of Jesus. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Again, keeping the words that are read and that are spoken and that are heard and that are known. As we make our way through this final chapter, we're going to understand some things about Jesus that if we didn't have the book of Revelation, we wouldn't understand these things of Jesus. It tells us some new things about Jesus. It informs us even more about who Jesus is. And it also will talk about heaven, and it'll talk about the hope of eternity. In doing this, we'll see that the book is written in regards to 
the present age, which is the time we are living now, and the age to come. The time when God will return, Christ will return, and he will bring all who believe in him to, to him, and he will end this time of the earth, and we will start a new age, the age that is to come. And God's righteousness will be upon his people. So that's kind of an overview of the book. Um, number of years ago, when I was in my early 20s, I was counseling at this music camp. I had been in the music camp as a student, and then I graduated from high school. I got a little older. They asked me to come back as a counselor. And so that was really exciting for me. Well, one night, we, were, we had put the kids to, to sleep, and we were kind of just hanging out around the cabins. We were talking. And all of a sudden, we heard a noise, and we looked over, and we saw someone running through the camp. That was dark, so we couldn't tell exactly who that person was, but it was light enough to know that it was not someone from the camp. So being young and foolish, what do you think we did? We chased after him. (laughs) That's what you do when you're in your 20s, right? You don't know who this person is. You don't know if they're dangerous or not. You just run after him, right? We started chasing this guy. And we lost sight of him, and so I stopped, and I was looking around, and this guy ran probably from here to that cross, right in front of me. I mean, he ran pretty fast, caught me off guard, you know, and I was like, whoa, what's going on? You know, a little fear rushed through me. Um, Then he ran out from the camp and ran down the road and happened no more. But that rush of fear that came when he ran in front of me, that that danger that you experience when, when it's something unknown, right? And, and I, when I was reading this passage in, uh, in Revelation that Arthur read for us, it kind of brought back that idea. You know, I kind of tried to bring back that idea of what is it like to have a little fear in you when you're dealing with situation. Because you have the situation in Revelation 1.17. Read the underline with me. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. So you can imagine that what happened with John, it probably happened pretty quickly. He was looking one way. He heard a voice. And as you heard Arthur read the scripture, very descriptive, isn't it? A voice like a trumpet. And he turned around and he saw these seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of these seven golden lampstands, he saw someone walking around. And so all of a sudden, John is feeling fearful, right? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though did. Dad, there was fear going through John. It felt like a little bit of a dangerous situation, something unknown. Who had ever seen the glory of God and lived, right? And he was in the very presence of the glory of God. Jesus was there. But what did Jesus do? He laid his right hand on John to give him a sense of peace, to give him some encouraging words. He says, do not fear. I am the first and the last. See, this helps John to gain perspective, to know that the the one and only Son of God And all power was right there before him. The one who had gained all victory, who is in charge of all things. He is in his presence, the unchanging one. You know, all around us, the world changes. And John will get these visions and and have all this information that he is supposed to write down. All this change that is to incur. But Jesus is there telling him, I am the first and the last. No matter what you hear, no matter what you write down, no matter how 
out there, it sounds, no matter how fearful you might be as you're encountering all of this, be at peace, for I am with you. I am the first and the last. All victory is found in me. Whenever I teach the book of Revelation, I always like to remind people that the main thrust of the book of Revelation is that God is in charge and God's plan will come as he wants and God will be victorious. That's what you really need to read, most of all, when you read the book of Revelation. And Jesus is here saying, I am the first and the last. I am here. You don't need to be fearful. You can be at peace. I am in control. Then Jesus gives us more understanding of who he is and what he possesses. When we read Revelation 1.18, he says, I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So we know that he died, right? He was crucified on the cross. He's reminding John, remember, I was dead, but now I've risen from the dead. I'm alive again. And even more, I have the keys of death and Hades. It was because of his suffering and his death and his resurrection that he won the right to have these keys. Jesus is the one who will judge. The one who will judge who will go to heaven. And the one who will judge who will go to hell. Those who do not have Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord will be sent to hell by their choice. It is in Jesus and in Jesus alone that we enter heaven. And those who will go to hell will be locked up there forever. But those who trust in the Lord as their Savior and Lord will have the protection of the one who makes the final judgment. In the book of Revelation, we see that John is writing what he sees of what will be. And so John will be given a glimpse of the future and will share this with us. So as you read the book of Revelation, it is for John a glimpse of the future. And so there's things that he sees that are of the future. You can only imagine if you saw in the future and things were very, very, very different from what they are now. How would you describe them? How would you write them? How would you write them in a way that others would understand them? And so you see John trying to make sense and so the imagery in the book of Revelation is about John trying to describe these things of the future. And it's really fun to go through them and, and understand what, what John is talking about. And so the book of Revelation is quite the read and quite the study. Well, the last verse of chapter 1, verse 20, sets us up for the next couple chapters as it deals with the seven churches, and Arthur read about the seven churches that John was writing these letters to. And so we read in verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, again Jesus is speaking, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we are told that the, the seven stars are angels that oversee these churches. And the lampstands represent the churches. I don't know if you're a fan of Survivor. Uh, it's a reality TV show. But one of the things that happens is they, people can get voted off on Survivor. And they have this, this staff with a flame, right, a little fire. 
And when they get voted off, what happens is they, they put out the flame, which represents that they are no longer a part of the game, right? Once their fire is gone, they're no longer part of the game. And that's kind of the idea here, right? There is these seven lampstands representing the seven churches. And we'll talk a little bit in a moment what these lampstands represent, but just keep that, that illustration in mind. Because these letters that John writes are to literal churches. The seven churches that Arthur mentioned when he read the scripture. It's important to remember that the church of Ephesus was the capital of, or the Ephesus was the capital of Asia Minor. It was the center of land and sea trade. It was one of the three most influential cities of the time in the Roman Empire. It was where the temple of Artemis, which was one of the ancient wonders of the world, was located, and it was one of the major industries that manufactured images to this goddess, to Artemis. Yet, while it is a letter to an actual church, it is also representative of all churches, of all times, because each of these churches represents a special kind of church. Each gets a special message from the Lord, but it also is a message to all the churches. It's a prophetic book. And remember, prophecy has a message for the now, for the people that hear it right then in that time. But prophecy also has a message for those in the future. It is an interesting writing, right? It's for the now, but it's for the future. And so for the churches that it's being written to, but it's also for our churches. And so as we hear about what is being written to these churches, it's important for us to reflect upon our own church and say, where are we strong? Where are we weak? Where are we stumbling? Where do we need to improve? What is God doing in and through our church? Where does God want us to work? And that's why we have this theme, a learning church, because we're trying to figure out who are we in God's kingdom and what does God want us to do? See, it's vitally important to remember these warnings and messages that they're from Christ himself, the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, the one who walks among the golden lampstands, meaning that Christ is the one who sustains us and is intimate with us. Without Christ, we would fall. Even though Christ resides in heaven, he also resides with our church. Now, we could easily do a whole sermon series on these seven letters to the churches, but for our purpose this morning, I want to just highlight a few things. But I also want to to give you a perspective for a moment. When I was uh, managing my son's baseball team, I've talked about that before, Um, some of you know I have a very competitive spirit about me. And I was managing, and our kids were playing, and I was not happy with uh, the strike zone of the umpire. And so I was making comments about his strike zone, and I guess I was making them a little too loud. Because at one point, you can just imagine this, right? I'm sure Tammy was just horrified at this. The umpire stops the game, turns to me, and points at me, and says, another word, and you'll be kicked out of the game. Okay, good Christian example, right? <laughs> So I'm standing there, and I'm like, this is going quickly through my mind. I said, I have two choices here. I can heed the warning and shut my mouth, or I can continue on like I'm doing and get kicked out of the game. Well, 
happy for you to know that I chose the first. I shut my mouth, and I didn't say anything more the rest of the game. And that's kind of here. As we come into this book of Revelation, and we come into chapters 2 and 3, Jesus is giving these warnings to this church, these churches. He is challenging the churches and how they're failing. He's encouraging them, but he's also challenging them. And we would do well to heed the warning that is given here, or we will find ourselves kicked out of the game. And so, Jesus starts with giving an encouragement to the church. He wants to build them up first before he challenges them. So he says things like this to the seven churches. He says, I know your hard work. He says, I know how you feel rich, even though you are struggling in poverty. He says, I know your love and faith and service and perseverance. He says, I know your deeds. Your deeds show that you are alive in me. He says, I know you have kept my word and not denied my name. And so he encourages them and lifts them up and says, I know you're working hard. I know you're doing these things well. I know you're following my name. I know that you're, you're doing what I'm calling you to do in these ways. But he says, you're struggling. You're not doing everything you can do. He wants the church to be a strong witness for him. But when they walk in ways that do not glorify God, they tear down his name instead of build it up. So he tells them straight out what they're doing wrong. In fact, he says it like this. He says, I have this against you. Now imagine that. God's saying to you, I have this against you. I think we would straighten up, we would, our eyes would get big, and we're like, okay, God, what do you have against me? <laughs> what are we not doing right? And then he says, you have abandoned your love for God, and you need to get it back. Okay, Lord, <laughs> I hear you. He says, you are lukewarm, and you're trying to walk in the ways of God, but you're also trying to walk in the ways of the world. Okay, God, I need to kind of fix that, don't I? I need to... Be more faithful to you. He says, you are allowing believers to walk in sin, and you're not calling them on it. You know that they're in sin, and you're letting them live in that sin, and you're okay with it. That's not good, he says. You are allowing false teaching to exist among you. That is not good. That needs to stop. And so he gives them these Warnings of where they are struggling. But then thirdly, he gives them the warning. Warning them to wake up and repent. Turn back to God. Do not be lost in your ways. He wants them to be strong and fruitful as churches. See, the warnings are that if you do not turn back and you do not repent and you do not follow me, then I will snuff out your fire. See, the purpose of the church is to do the work of God. The purpose of the church is to glorify his name. The purpose of the church is to further the kingdom of God. God has established a church to be a light to the world for God. And if we are not being that light, if we are not living faithfully, if we're not doing what God is calling us to do, then there is no point for a church to exist. 
And God will say, I don't need you if you're not going to live for me. And he will wipe out that church. And so that wakes us up, hopefully, to say, our goal, our call should be to live for God and live for God alone, not live for my own desires. When the session meets, hopefully we're not thinking, what do I want? We're thinking, what does God want? Even if it has nothing to do with what I want. And so these warnings are given to discipline for the purpose of bringing the church back into a good and right relationship with God to be faithful believers and to be faithful churches. And then he gives us a fourth thing. He promises a reward. He promises a reward. These rewards are wonderful. They're rewards like the right to eat from the tree of life in heaven. A reward that they will not be hurt by the second death. The second death refers to a spiritual death. Those who do not have Jesus Christ will die spiritually when they get sent to hell and they are forever not in the presence of God. You will not be hurt by the second death. He promises to give them this white stone. The white stone is the remembrance, is honor that is given to those who have conquered in the midst of persecution. Where God says, I know it's not easy. I know it's not easy to be a Christian. I know it's not easy to share your faith. I know it's not easy to be a Christian church in the midst of a non-Christian world. I know it's not easy. And as you persevere, the reward for you is great in heaven. He gives them the morning star, the very life of Christ in us. And he promises us to have fellowship with God forever. These are some of the rewards for the churches who stay faithful to God. After a couple years of Tammy and I being married, we were trying to have children, and we were having difficulty in fact, three years went by. So we'd been married about five years, and we still were not able to have a child. Every, more, uh, every day, every month that went by, it was difficult. Wanting to be pregnant and not getting pregnant. Wanting to have children and not having a child. And then Tammy, we found out, got pregnant. I think you remember I told you about it one time, is when I accepted a, church, a job at a church in Colorado. So we were moving states, we were moving to a brand new house, we are setting up a house, I had a new job, we are in this, all this new stuff, and all of a sudden we find out that Tammy is pregnant. <laughs> in the midst of all this stress, all this busyness, Tammy's pregnant. But that was so exciting for us. But you know how it works, right? You're pregnant, but you have to wait nine months till you have the child, right? So you have to wait nine months to have that blessing. But then finally, Tyler came. And a couple years later, Tammy got pregnant a second time. And then nine more months, Tiffany came. And after having our two children, it was like no big deal that we had to wait, right? The blessing, the reward was worth the wait. And so God tells us that there's rewards. And it can seem like so far off. But God, it's in heaven. That's a long time away. But God says, but it's worth the wait. The rewards in heaven are worth the wait. They are far better than any reward that we'll ever receive here on earth. Better than any that we receive here on earth. 
You know, sometimes when I'm driving, I make my family a little nervous. I'm not nervous when I drive, but my family can get a little nervous. And I think they get a little nervous because sometimes I can be a little aggressive when I drive. I mean, you live in California, you got to be aggressive when you drive, right? If you're not aggressive, you'll never make a lane change. Well, I have to be honest. Sometimes when Tammy's driving, I'm nervous. <laughs> She's not here. Don't tell her that. Why is that? Because when we don't feel like we're in control, we get nervous, right? When I'm driving, I know I'm in control. I'm not nervous. But when Tammy's driving, I'm not in control. So I get nervous. We get nervous when we're not in control. And we know that we're not in control. We know that God is supposed to be in control, Right? But sometimes it might feel like God is not in control. We look around our world, we see the sin, we see the evil, and we say, is God really in control? We see danger and disease and calamity. Where is God in all of this? The truth is God is in control. The main theme of the book of Revelation, like I said, is that God is in control. His plan will come about as he desires and he will be victorious in the end. Now, during the time, there's going to be struggle and calamity and hardship and, and a lot of bad things. Why? Because we live in the midst of sin. And we live in the midst of sinners who have not given themselves over to Jesus. And Jesus talks about this in the parable of the tares and the wheat. Matthew 13, 24 to 30. Jesus explains it to us. Jesus says, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. See, the wheat, or the weeds are those who do not know Jesus Christ, those who Satan has turned away from God. And they exist amongst the wheat, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. They bring trouble and pain and heartache and sin into our world. But God will take care of it at the end of time, at the harvest, at the end of time. There will be a day of the Lord, a day when Jesus will come and will judge the world. And those who know Christ will go to heaven and be with Christ. And those who do not know Christ will be given over to Satan and taken with him. In the book of Revelation, we are reminded again that the earth is not our ultimate home. But we have a home with God. Jesus has gone and prepared a place for us and tells us that one day we will go and to live with him in our home, in heaven. 
This day will come, and it is for that day that we have hope. Now, Jesus gives a great illustration about this in the Gospels. Let me ask you a question before I talk about that, though. If someone told you, tomorrow at 12 o'clock, a thief is coming to rob your house, would you heed the warning, or would you say, ah, whatever, if he steals my stuff, he steals my stuff, no big deal, or... Would you do everything in your power to stop the thief? Maybe you would buy a big dog. Maybe you would get a top-of-the-line alarm system. Maybe if you could, you would talk some policeman into coming and hanging at your house around that time. But I don't think you would go out to lunch and say, ah, no big deal. He can have my stuff. No. If you know, knew the exact time when the thief was coming, you would do everything in your power to protect your home. And Jesus says, this is the point of the book of Revelation, to make sure that we are living in a way that shows we are ready for Christ's return. Are you ready for Christ's return? Are you living in a way that shows you are ready for Christ's return? If Christ returned, would he say, ah, caught you off guard? Or would you say, God, I am doing everything to live for you. I am ready. Whenever you come, I am ready for your return. Jesus says, you need to be ready, just like you would be ready for a thief to come into your house. You need to be ready, for you do not know when that time will come. So every minute of every day, live as if I am coming. I mean, right in the middle of my sermon, Christ should come right now. We don't know when Christ is going to return. We need to live ready for his return. And then we get to the end of the book of Revelation. One of the most wonderful Passages that talks about heaven, talks about what heaven will be like. And we read in Revelation 22, 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me, John is speaking, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb of God through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. One of the great things about the book of Revelation is just the, the very descriptive language that is in it. We have a mention of paradise. The whole heavenly city is a paradise. In the first paradise, Adam and Eve got to see it. But in the last paradise, all who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord will get to see it, will get to experience it in person. And in this per paradise, we are told of the river of life that flows from the throne of God, the eternal life that we have 
in Jesus Christ. The river is coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and all of our needs are met in God. John wants us to understand the importance of the Lamb, and he speaks often of the Lamb here in the end, in the final state of things. It is only by the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God that we could be in heaven, and we are told now that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. And so we have this picture of this paradise that we will live in. And he also talks about the tree of life. The tree of life being on both sides of the river. So no matter what side of the river you're on, you can eat of the tree of life. There no longer being exclusion from the tree of life as there, was at, as there was at one time in the Garden of Eden after there was sin and God did not want them to eat of the tree of life. He did not want us to live eternally on this earth in our sinful state. But now we're in heaven and we have access, full access to the tree of life. We're told that the leaves, or that there will be wonderful fruit on this tree always, and that the leaves will bring healing. This is not a healing from sin because we're told that there's no longer any sin in heaven. And it's not a healing from our ailments because we're told that there's no longer any sickness or suffering. But it is a healing of the soul, of the pain, of the grief, of the sorrow that we experienced on earth. All of this will be wiped away, will be cleansed, will be no more. We will be completely healed and refreshed. Our pain and sorrow gone. And there is perfect freedom in this paradise, free from all evil. Satan will not be there as he was in the Garden of Eden, and nothing will be accursed. Isn't this an amazing picture? I mean, as I talk about it, it just... It's such a peaceful and wonderful idea of what life will be with God in heaven. And we'll be worshiping God. In his very presence, we'll be worshiping God. I don't know about you, but when I come to worship each Sunday, and I worship God, and I experience his presence, it is so wonderful. I can only imagine what it's going to be like to worship in his very presence, in the presence of his love and peace, and joy, and power right there with us. It's a place for us to be in full relationship with God in whom we set our hope. One of the Olympics, there was a marathon racer from Tanzania. And when he came into the stadium, he was hours behind everyone else. You heard me right. He was hours behind everyone else. By the time he entered the stadium to end the marathon, all the drama was gone. I mean, the race had already been won. Much of the crowd had dispersed. But as he entered the stadium, the few that were there gave him an applause to encourage him on to the finish line. He was weary, he was tired, he was stumbling, his knee was bleeding from a fall earlier, but he made it to the end. And after he finished, he was being interviewed, and they asked him the question, why did you finish? I mean, you had no chance of winning. You were hours behind everyone else. Why did you go on? In other words, why did you not quit? Why did you not stop? There was no hope of you winning. I mean, usually you run a race to win, right? So as long as you can see your opponents, you think, I have a chance, right? There's always that chance. 
but he had no chance at all. Can you imagine running a marathon, being exhausted, not even seeing anyone else in the race? They're all done, and you're still running. And this was his answer. He said, my country did not send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish the race. And that is the message we need to have as we live our faith for God. It is about persevering. We have been given this life, not just to start the race, but to finish the race and to finish it well. Every day we should say to ourselves, I am living for the Lord, and I am going to finish the race well. Genesis 1.1 starts the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens and the earth. He created all things in the earth. He created man and woman. He created them in their image, in his image. He created us so that we could live in relationship with him, in a relationship with one another, and ultimately because of sin, to tell people about Jesus. That is why he created us. And then read with me the last verse of the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. We have gone through the story. Why? So that we can understand how our story fits into God's story. How we could understand that God has a purpose for each one of us to work in his will for his purpose and for his glory and to see how God is loving and merciful and forgiving, and how he calls us to be loving and forgiving and merciful. And so I pray that as we've done an overview of the whole Bible, it might encourage you, excite you to maybe go back to Genesis 1-1 and read the whole Bible for yourself. It may take you six months, may take you a year, may take you three years, but I encourage you to go through it again. And as you go through it, if you have questions, if you have comments, if you have thoughts, if you have concerns, talk to me. I love to talk about the Bible. And I'd be more than happy to talk with you about anything that you learn, see, or are concerned about in the Bible. Let us pray.